0: Okay, so um, tonight um, if you turn over your service sheet you'll actually see that the passage that we're looking at is exceptionally short, um, but I think that we can actually find a lot of, uh, well, as, as we always do, we'll find a lot of um, useful um, and good things to glean from it. Um, so if you just turn over your service sheet or grab your Bible or um, your phone, whatever you want, um, we're reading from First Peter. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So that's our passage for this evening, um, exceptionally short and yet quite rich in uh, in what um, I think God uh, wants to say to us. So we're we're coming to the to the end of our series. In um, uh, it was a, a short series in, in the church calendar, um, and we've kind of followed through. We've uh, followed through two different events that have happened in um, in the Book of Acts. So we had the Ascension of Jesus Christ. And then Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was poured out on believers, um, and um, when um, they were then sent to preach the gospel to all uh, nations. And today we come to a slightly different type of, uh, of sermon. This is not an, an event, and it's actually quite important that we realize that today's sermon is not talking about a specific event that suddenly changed everything but we're actually talking about something that has already always been there and um, it is the uh, doctrine of the Trinity. So today, uh, many churches, especially more sort of traditional um, denominations, the Church of Ireland, uh, the Catholic Church, um, and, and other denominations are celebrating Trinity Sunday, a day when we focus more specifically on God as triune, that is God the Father, God the Son and the Spirit. And I think if we we look at what the Bible says about certain issues, and then we look at our culture around us, we can very, very, very easily find um, discord. We saw that yesterday, probably the most blatant example um, of this week. We saw that the way Ireland have voted has gone so against what Scripture teaches about human life. So really if, if, we, if we wanna find something where the Bible and our culture disagree, it's quite easy. We find that very, very quickly. And yet I think when we look at different world religions, when we look at Islam and Judaism and Christianity, we can actually find a lot of things on which we do agree. Now I, I didn't do much research into this, but I can assume and believe that most devout Muslims and most devout Jews would have agreed with most devout Christians on the referendum from yesterday. We agree on the view on marriage, mostly. We agree on so many different things. And yet we know that there are certain very, very, very key things on which we completely disagree and put us at odds. And I think that probably the doctrine of the Trinity with the person of Jesus Christ and who we believe he is, and it's all linked in the end, is probably the most controversial doctrine when it comes to discussions with other world religions. When you mention that we believe that God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, most Muslims will say that we believe in three gods, and to them, if you if you read into what they believe, it makes perfect sense that to them, that is blasphemy to believe in three different gods because they, like us, actually believe that God is one. There is only one God. And if you actually look at a lot of church history, the doctrine of the Trinity is is also quite controversial. We we actually have a habit here of um, reading the creed, the Apostles' Creed. And there are a few other creeds as well, and most of those, if not all of them, came out of, res- of a response to, to Trinitarian heresies, to people who believed the wrong thing about who God is. And so in response to that, creeds were written to lay out exactly what we believe, what the Bible teaches about who God is. But I also think when we mention the word Trinity, we're, we, we're kind of our minds are kind of blown, and we kind of get really, really, really scared. Well, there's two responses. There are people who think they're they're convinced that they can understand every tiny bit of the Trinity, and um, you can't. They can't. Um, and then there's other people. There's others of us who just kind of get scared at this idea of the Trinity, and it's, it just seems to be this big doctrine that. Um, we 'll we'll leave that to people who like reading big big long books and um, we, we won 't really focus too much on it because it 's just a big weighty doctrine and actually what what I want to do tonight is show that it is, it is not only a doctrine that we can understand part of but also something that can change and that will change our day to day life and our relationship with God one of my uh, favorite um, speakers and pastors is a man called Matt Chandler. And, and when he describes um, the way in which we should know God, he always uses the same example. And I'm actually going to apply it to myself. So imagine I came home after work and, and, and sat on the sofa next to uh, Susie and turned to Susie and said, and just suddenly with this outpouring of love for her, just said, Oh my God, I am just so deeply in love with you right now. I don't know what it is about you. It, it, it could be your long brown hair. It could be your dark, dark brown eyes. It could be, I, I don't know what it is, but something in me is just making me love you so, so much. And that would be a really, really sweet thing to say if she wasn't blonde and had blue eyes. And in a roundabout way, I think that understanding the Trinity will save us from making that type of mistake, declaring our love and our worship to God without truly knowing who he is. And so we're going to look at this in, um, in three sections, quite fitting for tonight's sermon. We're going to start off with just kind of giving a very, very brief overview of the Trinity. And I'm, I'm going to give three reasons why we should believe the Trinity and why, it's, why it will change us. And the first of those is we should believe the Trinity because it's true. The second one is we find salvation in the Trinity, in the triune God. And the third is we find joy and comfort in the triune God and knowing that he exists as three in one. So number one, we should believe the Trinity ultimately because it's true. And I think the, the difficulty with it is that the word Trinity never actually appears in the Bible. You can search every page of the Bible and never see the word Trinity. And yet it is absolutely everywhere on every page of the Bible we see God revealed this way. If we look at Genesis 1:26, where God has created the world and He's, he's about to create man. Genesis 1.26 says that God said, let us make man in our image. We see from the beginning um, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. We see later on in the New Testament Christ being um, revealed as the Creator God, the one that created. We see all over Christ's life that the Trinity is revealed. We see When he is baptized, we see that God sending down the Spirit, the Father sending down the Spirit on God the Son. We see in his death, if we look at different ways that it's described, sometimes described as Jesus offering his life up to the Father, other times offered up in the Spirit And obviously we all know the blessing that in certain churches you have to kind of say staring awkwardly around and may the blessing of the Father and the Son and you know sort of it's kind of quite awkward. But then then again you see there God reveals three in one. And what I want us to kind of see briefly in this first section is three things that the Bible teaches about the Trinity. And these are found in those big, scary, massive books on God. And the first one that the Bible teaches is that God is three persons. We've already seen that. We know that. We say that. We, we believe that God is three in one. We'll actually sing it later. We believe that God exists as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And, he, and that he has always existed that way. He is eternal as the Father, eternal as the Son, eternal as the Spirit. The second one is that we believe that each person of the Trinity is fully God. If we look at God the Father, we probably the easiest to think of. God the Father is truly, fully God. We know that. He's revealed as the Creator God, the one who foreknew everything, the one who brought everything into existence. If we look at Jesus Christ, well, this is kind of what our um, Christian in faith statement hangs on, our belief that Jesus is God. If we look at the book of um, John in chapter one, it starts off with saying the word was with God and the word was God. And as you go on in the book, um, at the end, when the Thomas, the disciple of Jesus, doubts and then sees the wounds on Jesus' hands and feet and declares, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He encourages it. He said, yes, you're right. And, that is, and that's actually the point of the whole book of John is that we would declare the same thing and see that Jesus is truly God. And then God the Spirit. We could go through countless, countless passages where we see that God the Spirit is truly, fully God, just as the Father and the Son is. He is not below, He is not above, He is equal with the Father and the Son. He's present at the beginning, hovering over the waters. He's the one who knows the mind of God. He is the means by which God dwells in us. He is truly God. And yet, we also believe that God is one. That's our third statement. We believe that God is one. We see that all over Scripture. We do not believe in many gods. We believe in one God and one God only. So, if we were to kind of sum up what we've seen so far... Would say God is one in three persons who are all the only God but different. And I think that that's probably one of the doctrines that can actually help us see that Christianity is not made up. Because if we were to make up a religion, why would we come up with a doctrine that is so far beyond our understanding? The Trinity is so far beyond our understanding. We can't illustrate it. We can't come up with a, uh, an analogy for it. We can't say that um, the Trinity is a bit like a, a three-leaf clover. You see, you kind of have the three parts to it. Because one leaf isn't fully clover. And yet we know that Jesus Christ is fully God. Spirit is fully God. the Father is fully God. We can't say that, oh, he's, he's a bit like water. You know, the water can exist in liquid, um, gas, and solid, and ice. Because they can't all exist that way at once. The same body of water cannot be all three at once. I once heard God, the Trinity, described as shampoo, as a three-in-one shampoo. Probably the worst illustration I've heard. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so I think here we come to a place where we need to spend every day of our lives, spend all of our energy knowing God more and more as the triune God, understanding all we can, praying that God would reveal it more and more to us and worship him for everything that we learn and find out about him. And not just learn about him, but actually learn to know him and fall on our knees and worship him for what he has revealed to us. And when you come to the point where you don't understand it anymore, and that'll come quickly because the Trinity, we cannot understand the fullness of that doctrine. Well, then we fall on our knees and praise the mystery that our God is. You see, he is mysterious. You can kind of struggle with that, trying to admit that there's stuff that we don't understand. And yet when we come to this, when we come to the fact that God exists as three persons and yet is one God and every person is fully God, there is no way we can actually understand this. And so we praise him for the mysterious God that he is, and yet we praise him because he has made himself known in Jesus Christ. And that's that's the our uh, the good news that we celebrate every Sunday is that our mysterious God has made himself known and knowable in Jesus Christ. So there is probably the um, quickest overview of the Trinity. That is what Christians, that is what the Bible teaches about who God is, that is what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. And so we kind of come to this and think, right, well, It's good, the Bible teaches it, so we must, you know, we need to know about it. But how does this actually change anything? And this is actually where we come a lot closer to the passage that we've looked at. I'm actually going to pick up a service sheet. So, this is where we're going to come and really look at the passage that we read at the beginning. So, Peter starts um, his letter by introducing himself, of course, although he was known to them. He says who the letter is from. And then he goes into explaining salvation. He explains how we have come to salvation. And we see that it is so clear that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in this. If we we read part of verse 1 here, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, and then we'll leave, we'll leave the rest of verse 1, we'll come back to it later, to those who are elect, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So he starts off by saying, do you know how you're saved? Do you know how you were chosen? You were chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father, The God foreknew you. That doesn't mean that he simply knew that at some point in your life you would become a Christian that you would come to know him this means that he actively chose you before the foundation of the world to be his child not because of anything that we've done not because of anything that we are not because we're better or worse than others but in his infinite wisdom he has chosen us to be his children And this would be a terrifying, terrifying thing if we didn't also see that he is shown as God the Father. He's not impersonal, he's not some overlord that just kind of dictates everything that happens without any sort of attachment to it. He is our Father, he is is personal, he is close. The reason you are a believer, according to Peter here, is that the Father chose you. He is both powerful, because only a powerful God could choose that, and He is intimate. He is our Father. If He was just powerful, and not our Father, and not close, it would be terrifying. He would be unpredictable. We see that in world leaders who are powerful, clearly hold a lot of power, but yet do not care about the ones in their who are entrusted to them. And yet, if he was just close to us and yet not powerful, well, he would be just like our fathers. Now, we may have grown up with great, great fathers, good, good fathers. Or we may have grown up with bad fathers. But in both cases, we see that our dads do not have full power. And it's a terrifying thing when you realize that your dad is not a hero, that that he's not the hero that can save the world. And yet we know that in God the Father, we have a Father who is both powerful and close. So then if we move on, he says, to those who are elect according to the full knowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. You see, The way that the Father chooses us is by the Spirit. He sets us apart. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot believe a single word of what the Bible says. Without the Spirit in us, we cannot believe a single word of the Gospel. Without the Spirit, we would not be Christians. We would have no desire to know God. You see, when we think of what the Holy Spirit does, our go-to reaction is probably um, the more obviously supernatural gifts, people speaking in tongues, people prophesying. And these are all very good things that we should desire. And yet the most miraculous thing that God the Spirit has done in you is to bring you from death to life. That is the most miraculous thing that God can do to a human. Not cause them to speak in a language that people don't understand, although he does that. Not cause them to have a word of prophecy, although he does that. But to bring them from death to life. That is what the Spirit does. He brings us from death to life and turns our eyes to Jesus Christ to become more and more like him. You see, if we think about a wedding day in our families, you you think about a family wedding day or or a close friend getting married, on the day of the wedding, the emotions are high. Everyone is excited. Everyone can't wait for the ceremony and then for the food and then for the dancing after. Everyone is so buzzing for it. And yet what happens the next day? We're exhausted. doesn't mean it wasn't good, but we're absolutely exhausted. The Spirit will cause us to have moments that are a bit like that, where He causes us to have a a rush of emotion, a rush of affection for God. He causes us to experience something more obviously supernatural. And yet that is not what he primarily does. Just like a family wedding day is not the primary place where you grow closer to your family. You barely see your family on a wedding day. It's not the moment where you grow closer to them. The moment where you grow closest to your family is in everyday life. And in the same way, the Spirit every day is working in us, is working in us. John Piper says that we might be aware of God doing maybe one or two things in our lives, and yet he is doing 10,000 in you to make you more and more like Jesus Christ every day. The last thing that um, Peter says is is to those who are elect for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You see, we're set apart for a very, very specific purpose. We are made clean by the blood of Jesus because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Because he was fully God, because he is fully God and fully man, he was able to take on the wrath of God, to pour out his blood instead of ours, and to present us blameless before God the Father. And so we are now set apart to be blameless before God the Father and to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Christ is the one we look to as God revealed to us. And again, the Spirit he is making us more and more aware of who Jesus Christ is, more and more he is opening our eyes to who he is, what he's like, what he has done for us. And this causes our obedience not to be begrudging, not to be impossible, but to be possible and joyful. Because we know that we are present we are already blameless before God the Father. And so the Spirit is making us more and more obedient to Jesus Christ. And this is a joyful thing that he does. So we see that not only is the Trinity true, we need to believe it because it's true, but we can find great joy in it because, first of all, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in saving us. The train God has saved us. He is as close to us as a father. He is in us by his spirit. And he is just like us through Jesus Christ. And yet he is so mighty and so far above us and in control of the whole cosmos that he actually has the power to bring us from death to life. See, we cannot be saved without all three persons of the Trinity doing that work in us. So the Trinity is true, God in three persons saves us, and finally, we find comfort and joy in the Triune God. So why, why did Peter write this letter. Well, if we if we look at the bit that we skipped over a second ago, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He uses some tricky language there to show that these are Christians who are not having the easiest time of it. And what Peter wants to do is encourage them, help them and show them and remind them of what they need to believe. Later on in the letter, he calls them to stand in what they believe. So he starts off by calling them elect exiles. So he's writing to exiled Christians. When he says exile, this means strangers at odds with the culture that they find themselves in. Now, it could mean that they were literally exiled, that they had been persecuted for their faith and they had been thrown out of um, the place where they came from. But prim- primarily what it means is that as Christians, they and us are exiles. Not like in the Old Testament where they were exiled because of disobedience, but we are exiled because of obedience, because we are at odds with the culture that we live in. And you see, when, when we're away from home, when we find ourselves away from home, if you're a bit of a, of a home bird, I tend to be a bit of a home bird. I like, I like being at home, I don't like being away for too long. I like things that will remind me of home. Um, for me, and probably only for me in the room, it would be um, things like baguette, nice wine, and really grumpy waiters. There's actually a place on the Lisbon Road where you can find all three. It's a French restaurant with a very grumpy man, um, who, and they serve nice wine and a baguette. But we all have these things that remind us of home, and, and when, um, if and when you have felt homesick, those things bring comfort to us. They remind us of home, of where we belong, And I think, in a way, that's what Peter is doing. He's saying, yes, you are exiled. You are away from home right now. So let me remind you of home. Let me remind you of where you belong. And where you belong and where you will one day be is with the triune God. Home is with God for all eternity. So while we're away from that in the body, we need to be reminded, and we need to remind each other and remind ourselves of who God is. So we are exiled. He then describes them as exiles of the dispersion. The dispersion was a word that they used to describe Jews who were, not, who were no longer in uh, Jerusalem, who were no longer where they belonged. And so first of all, of course he's referring to Jewish converts here who are no longer where they belonged. But yet he is bringing us in to the story of God's people. You see, this word was reserved for Jews in the Old Testament, God's chosen people. And yet by using it for us, by using it for them, and then for us, he is bringing us more and more into the story of God's people, showing us that we are the elect exiles of the dispersion. We are away from home, And so to stop us becoming like the culture around us, he reminds us of what we should believe, and first of all, who our God is. One of the reformers, uh, Martin Luther, said that if um, you want one book that sums up everything that we need to believe as Christians, it's 1 Peter. If basically, if you're marooned on an island and someone said you can only bring one book of the Bible, Martin Luther says, go with First Peter. That's where you find the essentials of what you should believe. And he starts with the Trinity. And yet we know that he's writing this letter to comfort and encourage these people. So why would you start with the Trinity? Why would you start with describing God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and, and maybe confusing people. I want to argue because there is no greater joy and no greater comfort than in God himself. Psalm 1611 says, um, David is speaking to God, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. God is where there is perfect joy. In God exists perfect joy, and of course it does. There is no evil in God. There is nothing sinful in God. God is perfect, holy. God is love, God is just. He's not needy. He doesn't need anything. He is perfectly satisfied within himself. He isn't bursting with love that he just needs to give to someone, and that's why he created us. He didn't create us because he needed something to love. He already had perfect joy and already has perfect joy in himself. And since eternity, God the Son, the Spirit, and and the Father, my goodness, my mind went... (laughs) has been delighting in himself each person of the trinity glorifying loving the other this community of persons perfectly loving perfectly glorifying each other and so in him there is this perfect joy and perfect love and perfect community And so when we think of what Christ did when he died on the cross, what he actually was doing is showing us what God has been doing for all eternity. And that is loving sacrificially. Laying down his life for someone else, for others. And so that shows us that in God is where we should look for our perfect joy and our perfect comfort. You see, when we, when we think of the greatest gift that God has given us, our automatic reaction is to think, well, the greatest, God, the greatest gift he's given us is our salvation. And yet, it isn't. Our salvation is only the means to the greatest gift that he has given us, which is himself. Through what Jesus Christ has done, we get him. The perfect God who is perfectly joyful, perfectly loving, perfectly content in Himself. And what He is doing by saving you is inviting you into that perfect joy that He already knows. Tim Keller describes it like this He says, The Trinity rejoiced the world into creation, the Trinity rejoiced you into being saved. And one day, the triune God will rejoice you into heaven to join finally and perfectly in that joy that he has known for all eternity. That is where we find true joy and true comfort in knowing that he is inviting us into him and inviting us to experience the joy that he knows. And we know that in him, there is unending joy an unending love an unending comfort so as we finish the trinity is not a dry doctrine it can be if you just read about it and never think and never see the way that it applies the fact that god exists in three persons is good news we can understand the gospel this way we can understand where perfect joy and perfect love is found we can see that God is so wonderfully close and that God is so wonderfully mysterious as well. That God is diverse and that God is also united. You see, I think as as a church, when we look around and see the different gifts that people have, and yet we see that the church is also united, God is giving us a glimpse of the perfect community that exists in himself. It's not a dry doctrine. It is who God is, and this is the God that we worship. And one day we will see him face to face. We will see this God face to face, not only spiritually, but physically in front of us, just as I am in front of you and you are in front of me. And we will finally and perfectly enter into that perfect joy, and the perfect love that God has known in himself for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have revealed to us and what we can understand, and we thank you as well for what we can't understand, showing us that you are so far above anything we can know. Lord, we thank you that by your Spirit you have shown us who Jesus Christ is. By your Spirit you have shown us that the Gospel is true. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, we can become and we are your children. We can call you our Father. We thank you that you are as close to us as a Father. We thank you that you live in us by your Spirit, making us more and more like you. And we thank you that your son is just like us and can relate to us. And yet we thank you that he is also the eternal God with you and with the spirit. We pray that we wouldn't see this as a dry doctrine, that it's, that it's hard to understand, but we would see it as a, an endless pool of joy and of wonder and of love. We pray that we would take time to think about it. We would take time to realize that in you, there is perfect joy and perfect love that has been there since eternity and will exist for all eternity. And that one day we will be with you and experience that fully and perfectly and yet never finish experiencing it, Lord. Amen.